Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. West Virginia is one of the most beautiful states in the U.S., It's full of rolling hills, mountains and valleys, and the best Appalachia has to offer. It truly is the almost heaven that John Danvers sang about and Take Me Home Country Roads, although he was from New Mexico. But whatever, he could appreciate its beauty. But maybe I'm a bit biased because it is my home state. I grew up out in the country, about six miles from where the story I'm going to tell today takes place. I have a very love-hate relationship with my home state. Visually, it's absolutely stunning to behold. Sometimes I would stand in our backyard and just be in awe of the view. You could see hills for miles and miles around. And it makes sense to me why so many from Ireland immigrated to the area many years ago. It most likely reminded them of home. In the summer, it's lush and green. And in the fall, it's at its best. The different colors of all the trees is one of the most beautiful sights. But it's a very economically depressed region of the country. The coal mines and steel mills, which once flourished in the area, have since all closed. And jobs are very hard to come by. So everything suffers in turn. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's a great place to visit, but not so great to live there. My hometown is Moundsville, West Virginia, 
home to the infamous Moundsville State Penitentiary. The prison there closed in the 90s, and they now give haunted tours. But I think it's a bit dubious because I don't ever recall it being haunted while in operation. And many years ago, the town had the choice between having a prison or a university. They chose the prison, thinking it would provide more jobs. And the university was built down in Morgantown, West Virginia. They have a thriving community there now, and we have no jobs and a ghost prison. We chose poorly. Across the street from the penitentiary is the Grave Creek Mound, which is an ancient burial mound constructed by the Adena Indians around 250 BC. Standing 62 feet high, you can take a tour and you can walk on top of it, which I don't think is a good idea. I have a feeling the Adena would be absolutely appalled to see people walking on their burial site. Moundsville's a small town. It's currently less than 10,000 people, and more and more people leave every year. It's about 10 miles away from the more well-known Wheeling, West Virginia, hometown to John Corbett and Three's Company's Joyce DeWitt. Even though Wheeling is a bit more metropolitan, it too suffers from the same economic depression. Being in the tip of West Virginia's panhandle, you can easily travel to nearby Ohio and Pennsylvania just within a matter of minutes. And that close proximity prompts many of us to eventually leave and to move to one of these states. I've lived in both now, having settled at the time in Pittsburgh, which I really enjoy. But I do love and miss many aspects of my home state. The people there are very genuine. And they'll hold the door for you and say hello when they pass you on the street. And that's not something you normally get in a bigger city. But at the same time, those same people aren't as welcoming if you're a bit different in any kind of way. That's another reason I left. I'm sure that's what the Hare Krishna community felt when they settled there and built a place in the early 70s. And I'm also sure that the residents surrounding the community weren't ready for the scandals that would soon follow, or the murders. In the 1980s, the new Vrindavan Temple became a tourist attraction for my small hometown area. But the Hare Krishna community quickly fell from grace. Rumors of drugs and child abuse were rampant. And then, one of their members went missing. Soon, a murder in Los Angeles would be linked back to the Hare Krishnas too. And they all pointed back to one person, the head of the Hare Krishna Temple at New Vrindavan, Swami Bhaktapada. So how did this all go so wrong? And what prompted these murders? Today I'm going to tell you about the Hare Krishna murders. First I want to go into a bit of background of how the temple came to be, and how it ended up in such a place like the rural West Virginia countryside. In 1965, at age 70, Srila Prabhupada came to New York on a freight ship and he only had $8 in his pocket, an umbrella, and an order from his guru to spread his religion to the West. Prabhupada was a Hare Krishna. When most of us think of Hare Krishnas, we imagine those guys at the airport asking for money in the robes and the shaved heads. The religion shares its roots with Hinduism, and one major tenet of the chanting 
is God's name, Hare Krishna. Prabhupada settled into the East Village, kind of an odd place, and he set up headquarters for his sect, which was the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON. I'll just refer to it as ISKCON later on. And this was the perfect time for the movement. Counterculture society was all the rage. Young people in America were disillusioned with every aspect of their lives. The government, societal structure, the religions they were brought up on. They wanted change, something different. So it's no surprise that the 60s and early 70s were just inundated with various religions and cults. The younger culture wanted answers and some kind of direction. My parents lived on a religious commune in the early 70s. Now, there's some disagreement between my parents as to whether it was a religion or a cult. According to my mother, when she wanted to leave with me, my grandparents had to call in the state police in California to intervene. So I kind of think it falls more into cult territory. But anyway, my parents made this crazy road trip with their new baby, me, from West Virginia to California to start a new life. But it didn't go well at all. They were both right out of high school and not ready for life's responsibilities, like a huge move or a baby. My dad said he remembers standing on a beach, feeling very disillusioned with life when he was approached by a member of this group. I think they were called the Gospel Outreach. And they invited him to see what they were all about. My parents ended up moving to this commune, and they tried to make a go of it. My dad loved it and was hooked, and he ended up staying and it changed his life. But my mom hated it and eventually left with me. So long story short, this is what a lot of people were feeling in this time period. They didn't know what they wanted from life, and they desired a place to fit in and some kind of guidance. So religions like the one my dad was involved with and ones like the Hare Krishnas fill this void. Prabhupada's mission was wildly successful. Within a few years, he had initiated thousands of followers, or devotees, and it was easy to join. You just had to follow four simple rules. No gambling, no intoxicants, no meat, and no sex outside of marriage. You were required to chant for 90 minutes or more a day and to live in the service of Krishna. And of course, many chose to wear the saffron robes they're famous for and to shave their heads, leaving a little rat tail on the back. One of Prabhupada's first devotees was a guy named Ken Ham from upstate New York. The son of a Baptist minister, it's no stretch of the imagination as to why he turned to this new religion. And when you join the Hare Krishnas, you're initiated and given a new name. So he was given the name Kirtantanada, or Swami Bhaktapada. And he would figure in very prominently to the future of many people, for better or worse. In 1968, farmland in West Virginia was purchased. And it was with the idea of forming a new community. One where the Hare Krishnas could gather together and live off the land. Places like this would spring up all over the country with many different various religious groups. This place was called New Vrindavan, after the holy city near Krishna's birthplace in India. I always found it really odd that they chose the place that they did, 
because they stuck out like sore thumbs. But this area is so beautiful and serene that I doubt they thought of the social ramifications of moving there at the time. One account that I read was a member named Andy Frankel, and he remembers the place very vividly. Andy was born to a Jewish father and a Lutheran mother in Manhattan. He studied at the City University of New York, and he became acquainted with the religion after making a school documentary about the Hare Krishnas in New York. They made a very big impression on him. And he and his wife moved to Canada, and when they did, they took with them homemade beads to chant their Hare Krishna mantra and the Bhagavad Gita, which is an ancient Hindu scripture. And shortly after, they gave up drugs and meat, and they came back to the United States hoping to catch a talk by Prabhupada when he was in Detroit. Andy and his family eventually snuck into New Vrindavan on back roads. At the time, there was a hepatitis outbreak in 1976, and no one was supposed to enter or leave. The community had grown to almost 80 devotees who lived in rooms above a barn that has housed cows. Their motto was simple living, high thinking. Andy adopted the name Sankirtana, and he quickly began working as a cook. His day began, like most of the other members, getting up at 4.30 a.m., for chanting and meditation. And then he would go to cook outside in a big pot. And they usually ate beans and rice. So in the early 1970s, Bhaktapada wanted to make a home there for Prabhupada, who traveled the world. And he was hoping that he would settle down there. Land there on McCreary's Ridge was purchased. And like I said before, I lived about six miles away on another ridge named Wayman's Ridge. Ridges are just essentially roads with residences, and since we're so high up in the hills, they're called ridges, like mountain ridges. And this is all about 11 miles away from Moundsville. It took us about 10 minutes to get to town, as we called it, and that was for anything essential, like groceries. There were a couple of small, really small general stores that were out there, but they didn't provide much more than snacks or overpriced gas. So this isolated place was constructed as a permanent home for Swami Prabhupada, but it turned into more of an opulent palace. The devotees did all of the work on the building, and they learned how to stain glass and lay bricks. They brought in 52 different varieties of onyx and marble for the walls and the floors, and all the furniture was made of teak. Over 10 rooms were decorated with jewels. And then there's all the gold of course, giving it the nickname the Palace of Gold, which is still advertised on the signs to this day. When Prabhupada died in 1977, the palace served as a memorial to him. But his death left a big void. Kirka and Tanada, a.k.a. Bhaktapada, took over the reins then. The devotees swelled to over 500, becoming one of the largest Hare Krishna communities in the country. And in 1979, the palace was open to the public for tours. The members said the opulence was a manifestation of their love for what Prabhupada gave to them. But Bhaktapada was a way different leader than Prabhupada. While he had a physically diminutive body due to polio as a child, he needed a cane to walk in his adult life. His mind was anything but weak. 
His followers found him to be very intelligent and charismatic. And he kept the devotees on a very tight leash. He monitored every aspect of the daily comings and goings. But he wasn't as restrictive as Prabhupada had been with aspects of the religion. Bhaktapada introduced interfaith elements into the daily prayers. And he wasn't as strict with the whole no drugs, drinking, or sex outside of marriage either. There were many devotees who were loose with the rules, living on or near the community that they called fringies. And one of these fringies was a man named Charles St. Dennis. So Charles St. Dennis had a very difficult upbringing. His parents were both hardcore alcoholics, and his deadbeat father eventually abandoned the family. And family life continued to be trouble for him, forcing him to run away at the tender age of 11. To support himself on the streets, he sold drugs. And that's what he was doing when he first encountered the Hare Krishnas. Charles was on the pier selling LSD when two Hare Krishnas approached him, wanting to tell him about the religion. And it appealed to him, causing him to completely change his life. He gave up drugs and he devoted his life to Krishna. In 1980, he moved from California to New Vrindavan, and he joined the other 500 devotees in their venture. The community was very self-sufficient. Food was grown on the land, and there was even a water treatment plant. And I remember a good bit of this. There was a restaurant at the palace, but it was shut down a lot due to violations. But other than that, they were able to take very good care of themselves. The 27-year-old Charles St. Dennis willfully surrendered everything to Krishna. The Krishna community provides something he never had before. Structure, security, and a family. Like many others, Charles eventually found it a bit difficult to abide by those four rules. He began drinking on the regular. Most of the fringes would come to the temple at least once a week, rather than every day to worship and chant. Charles met and fell hard for a fellow fringy by the name of Deborah Gear. The community nurse with the long red hair also fell very hard for him. And together they became a very compatible couple who ended up marrying. In the winter of 1982, Deborah came into a $50,000 inheritance. And with the money, Charles and Deborah wanted to fulfill their dreams of starting a nursery. The only problem was devotees were supposed to surrender all of their money to the palace. But Charles was very insistent that they would only give half. It's a decision which infuriated Bhaktapada. Around the same time, Charles was having some difficulty with the squatter on their property. Thomas Drescher was even fringier than the fringies. He seemed not to abide by any of the rules, being a Hare Krishna only in looks. Standing at six feet tall, 190 pounds, the hard-looking dresher served as a kind of muscle for the swami. Apparently, many of the locals had taken to roughing up and harassing many of the Hare Krishnas. I'm not surprised by this revelation at all. Some people back home can be very close-minded. I can remember one kid who lived at New Vrindavan, but for some reason, he went to public school with us. And he was a super nice kid, but kids were so mean to him because he was different. So Drescher was brought in as a protector. Having served in Vietnam during several campaigns, his military experience made him perfect for the job. 
but Drescher wasn't peace and love like all the others living at New Vrindavan. He was a hard, mean man and difficult to get along with. And that's exactly what Charles St. Dennis experienced. Although it wasn't anything serious at the time, he and Drescher had many spats. To help with the financial aspect of the nursery, Charles and Deborah enlisted the help of a friend, a guy named Dan Reed, who was a bookkeeper also living at the community. And on June 10, 1983, Charles and Deborah threw a party to celebrate the completion of the nursery. And after the party ended, they decided to prepare for bed. Deborah recalls Charles getting a late night call from Dan Reed. Charles told her that he was going to drop off $50 to Dan and be back soon. But she suspected it was more of an excuse to do more partying and that she would just see him in the morning. However, when she woke up the next day, he still wasn't home. After several hours, she got concerned and she started to go all over the community trying to find him. She telephoned Dan Reed to see if Charles might be there. And oddly, Dan said he never saw him the night before. This really started to worry her. So she reported her concerns to the West Virginia State Police. And when they questioned Swami Bhaktapada, he said Charles St. Dennis probably just up and left. But Deborah knew this wasn't the case. He wouldn't just leave her. So she then enlisted the help of Sergeant Tom Westfall of the Marshall County Sheriff's Department. Sergeant Westfall went to see a friend of Charles's named Big John. Big John lived on a farm in nearby Ohio, and there he sold pot to many of the fringies from New Redobin. When Westfall pulled up to the fall to the farm, he saw Charles's park truck parked there. Assuming that the missing man was just there with his friend, he was then shocked to hear that Big John hadn't seen him, and he had no idea how his truck came to even be there. So Westfall wanted to know if Charles had any trouble with anyone. And of course, Thomas Drescher's name came up. Westfall then discovered that Drescher had a very substantial criminal record with a history of violence. And after talking to others in the community, he found out that Drescher had been something of an enforcer, kicking people out, taking money, beating people up. He was trouble. And he seemed to be working at the behest of Swami Bhaktapada, a cruel and controlling man himself. Bhaktapada seemed to think that violence was a necessary evil, especially with the devotees. He was known to rise earlier than all the others and then whack them on the head with his cane to wake them up. The community was no longer just a place of peace and love and prayer. It had become the domain of Swami Bhaktapada who ruled with an iron fist. He even demanded that the children be separated from their parents at the age of four to be sent to the community school. Fear hung everywhere in the air like a cloud. And the devotee... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. These were ordered to talk to no one outside the community. So suspecting that Drescher might be behind the disappearance of Charles St. Dennis, Sergeant Westfall tried to track the guy down. But Drescher was nowhere to be found. So he went directly to the Swami, and at first he refused to talk. Then eventually he confessed that Drescher left for California. Another person not talking was Dan Reed. The only one complying was Big John, and he said he suspected that someone left Charles's truck at his farm to make everyone think that he left it there. Eventually came to light that Dan Reed had heard that his good friend Charles was having an affair with his wife, Brenda. Deborah also knew of this, but she had forgiven her husband for this indiscretion. However, when they talked to Brenda, she said it wasn't an affair but a rape. Either way, Dan had to be incensed with his friend. When Reed was finally tracked down, he appeared nervous when he was questioned about Charles but he claimed to not know his whereabouts. And before he could be questioned anymore, Dan Reed hightailed it back to Los Angeles. So without anything more to go on, this case stalled. But Westfall wasn't giving up, and he continued to investigate. And three years later, he would get a break. He got a call from the Los Angeles police. A man named Steve Bryant had been found murdered in his van, execution style, with two shots to the head. And this same man had been expelled from New Vrindavan. So who was Steve Bryant? He was the son of an Air Force officer, and his family was never in one place for long. Eventually, they settled in Michigan. And he had a very normal childhood, and all was well up until his teenage years. Then he became restless, started failing in school, spending more time drinking and doing drugs. His family thought that he might not even graduate. He was headed down a very troubled path. And that was until a fateful day in 1974. He met Krishna recruiters in Detroit, and they invited him to a free Sunday meal that they regularly hosted at their temple. And their ideas spoke to this restless young man. He felt that he finally found what he was looking for in life. Weeks later, he devoted his life to the Krishnas, totally embracing the lifestyle. He was ready for his initiation. A leader gave him his new name, Silochi. And in 1978, he went all the way to London to further his studies at a temple there. One day, he met a very beautiful woman named Jane Seward. And she too was new to the religion. She was just visiting. Steve then invited her to live with him. However, that, of course, goes against one of the four rules of no sex before marriage so the couple quickly married. Jane soon became pregnant with the couple's child, and they decided to move across the pond to New Vrindavan. And it seemed like the perfect place to raise this unborn child. Pregnant Jane first moved to the temple in West Virginia since Steve still had some commitments in London. 
and she was thrilled with the 500-acre compound and its inhabitants. And on our third day, she got to meet Swami Bhaktapada. She was totally drawn in by his charisma, and he was too, with her. A few weeks later, he offered to initiate her into the Krishnas. This offer was a bit unorthodox since that's usually a decision made between the husband and wife, and Steve was still not there. But she went ahead and agreed to the initiation, feeling honored by all the personal attention of the Swami. Months later, when Steve joined his wife, he was quite upset to find out that she made this decision on her own. He seemed bothered by the attention the Swami was bestowing upon his new wife. But he tried to just settle in and ignore everything. Conditions at the community weren't ideal. While devotees slept on the floor and used outhouses, the gurus lived a lavish life at the palace. It wasn't living up to Steve's expectations. He decided to visit one of his fellow Hare Krishnas, a guy named Patrick that he met while in London, who was now living in California. And they sat and commiserated over Steve's worries about Kirkintanada and his old life there at New Vrindavan. Despite everything, Steve and his family stayed, having a second child. One day, he saw one of his devotees use violence against another one as a form of punishment for disobeying the Swami. So he started to investigate to see if this was an isolated incident. And it was not. Violence had just become a norm at the palace. The Swami had surrounded himself with many unsavory characters, including Thomas Drescher. So Steve was deeply bothered by everything he then learned. He decided to confront Swami Bhaktapada in person, but he couldn't even get close to the man. Even more troubling was his control over his wife, Jane. She was encouraged by Bhaktapada to marry another man. Steve was outraged, insisting that the family leave. Jane refused, causing Steve to just leave with the kids. But escape wasn't so easy. Three henchmen were dispatched to go after him. They followed his van, cutting him off. The men approached the car with guns, taking the children back to the compound. With nowhere else to turn, Steve went back to his friend Patrick, and they decided they were going to get revenge. Steve decided he was going to bring down this corrupt Kurt Antonata, and he wanted to expose all these lies. He started living in his van, traveling the country, visiting other temples, trying to collect evidence of wrongdoing. Many people told him about various scams that Bhaktapada had encouraged. He had devotees go out, and they posed as they were collecting for various charities. But of course, they were just bringing the money back to him. Some even had a quota that had to be met. Some of the women who were sent out who didn't meet their quota just turned to sex work to make up the difference. Devotees were either terrified or in awe of the gurus and just did their bidding. When he was disobeyed, the Swami would stick his henchmen onto the devotee. So Steve continued to collect all this evidence. He tried to go the, to the police, but his evidence was just all hearsay and not much more. And then he discovers something even more disturbing. There were many accounts of sexual abuse at the school at New Vrindavan, even at the hands of their leader. 
Steve feared for his children. I mean, violence was one thing. These allegations of sexual abuse were absolutely appalling. Steve called and tried to warn Jane to get out, but she was happily remarried at this point after getting divorced from him, and she didn't believe any of his allegations of corruption. The rumors of what Steve was trying to do got back to the palace leaders. Not realizing that his life was now in danger, Steve continued with his quest. And then he discovered some letters written by Prabhupada and archives out in Los Angeles. In the letters, Prabhupada voiced his concerns about Bhaktapada, saying his influence was bad and his mind was not well. Steve thought this would surely bring him down. And when the others heard about the original founder's letters, they would definitely want to leave. But Steve knew that this campaign had certainly endangered his life. He was just exhausted from all the researching and the running and the hiding. After finding love with a girlfriend, he just decided he was going to abandon this quest. It was just all too much. So he took a much-needed break and visited his parents back in Detroit. While he was there, his mother noticed a bumper sticker on his van that said, Are we having fun yet? She laughed at it, but when she looked at Steve, he wasn't laughing. He knew what it meant. It meant his van was marked, and he was being tracked by the henchmen. Although he had decided to abandon his quest, it wasn't over. Steve went ahead with trying to start a new life with his girlfriend. They decided they were going to get married. But before he could do that, he wanted to make one last trip to Los Angeles to get some money that a friend owed him. But that decision would be one of his last. On May 22, 1986, as Steve was parked in a van outside his friend's house, a man approached. When Steve rolled down the window, the man said to him, You better chant Hare Krishna because you're going to die. Steve Bryant was then shot twice in the head. The shooter... Thomas Drescher. The story hit the media, who converged upon the small West Virginia community in droves. They were now under this huge spotlight. And now the FBI was working with Westfall. It was then he received a call from a man named Randall Gorby, and he claimed that Drescher had stayed with him. He agreed to cooperate with authorities to nail him. While using a phone tap, he got Drescher to admit to the killing of Steve Bryant and that it was a hit for $8,000 done at the bidding of Swami Bhaktapada. And not only that, but Drescher also admitted to killing Charles St. Dennis. Although they still didn't have a body, authorities charged Thomas Drescher with the murder of Charles St. Dennis, as well as that of Steve Bryant. On December 2, 1986, the murder trial of Charles St. Dennis began. His wife, Deborah, testified about the trouble he had with Drescher. On December 5, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life without parole. Good old Ken Reed was also charged with murder, but he had not yet gone to trial. Afraid of the results, he pled guilty to manslaughter on the condition that he provide the body and tell exactly what happened. So this is what he told happened on the night of June 10, 1983. He lured Charles to a cabin with the pretext of doing cocaine together. And once he got there, he was met outside by Dan, 
but hiding was Thomas Drescher, who then emerged with a gun. Charles tried to flee to his truck, but Drescher shot him 11 times. To the men's surprise, he wasn't dead. He started crawling to his truck. And that's when Drescher yelled for Dan to give him a knife. Charles was then stabbed multiple times, but he was still breathing. The men then covered him in plastic, and they drove to a nearby creek where they buried him. His actual cause of death was drowning. Charles St. Dennis was finally dead. So two men were dead at the hands of one man, Thomas Drescher. Behind both murders was a more significant figure, Swami Bhaktapada. With the federal government now involved, it was all coming to a head. Drescher was also convicted of killing Steve Bryant. He decided to work with authorities and tell him what he knew about his leader. The killing of Steve was indeed a hit. When Drescher was caught, in his bag was a found a map of the neighborhood where Steve was shot, a passport, and a ticket to India, and of course that $8,000 that was personally counted out by Bhaktapada, complete with his fingerprints. In 1985, Kirk and Donata was excommunicated by ISKCON for his departure of their teachings. But this was just his first fall from grace. Then came a huge FBI raid on the compound, and that ended with him being charged with racketeering, mail fraud, and conspiracy to commit murder, among other things. He was convicted of 9 out of 11 counts in 1981, or no, I'm sorry, 1991. And after spending months in prison and house arrest, his conviction was overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals. They found that child molestation evidence that had been presented had unfairly prejudiced the jury against him. He returned to New Vrindavan, but there was not long another big scandal. In 1993, he was caught in a sex act with a young male devotee. During his retrial in 1996, he pled guilty to mail fraud, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released in 2004, and he later died in 2011 at the age of 74 at a hospital in India. The charismatic leader who influenced so many was gone for good. So the Hare Krishna community at New Vrindavan tried very hard to recover. But after all these scandals, the donations which kept the palace afloat had just just dried up. No one wanted to give. And many devotees just left in droves. Their numbers dropped down to 225 members. There was less than a dozen students at the school. Even the cows had trouble, unable to produce milk. Most of the land was sold off to members who built homes there. And to pay taxes, they had to get jobs. Many worked at kiosks selling merchandise or getting jobs as truckers. In 1998, ISKCON let the community back in. By this time, the devotees had dwindled to only 165, some living above the temple in an ashram and others in nearby homes or apartments. The palace was reopened that same year for tours as a way to try to recoup some money. A new leader was appointed named Java, or I'm sorry, Ja Christian, who's a former sales executive at a software company in his native Switzerland. One day, the Hare Krishnas came to his door handing out pamphlets. He didn't pay too much attention to the propaganda 
until six weeks later when his wife and 23-year-old son were killed in a car accident. After that, he became a devout believer. But he insists he's not a new guru, just simply an administrative steward for the temple, which is probably a very good thing. So, so far, they're doing well, finally putting this whole sordid past behind them. And last I heard, they were kind of selling off some land around there to a lot of the gas. They're doing a lot of gas drilling out there. So I think they're finally making some money back. Steve Bryant was able to do what he wanted, to bring down the corrupt Kirkandonato or Swami Bhaktapada. But he had to do so with his life. And his ex-wife Jane still lives at the compound, and she's still a devout believer. As for Charles St. Dennis, his family was finally able to bury him and to hold a memorial, something that meant a lot to his widow, Deborah. What started out as a place to find enlightenment sadly turned into the absolute opposite of everything it represented. The four golden rules were not only broken, but crushed under the greed and dishonesty of a man who was supposed to be a spiritual leader. Instead of being the guru they needed, Bhaktapada was simply a man who gave in to his earthly desires. It's a tale that will most likely haunt the Hare Krishna community forever. Small communities like the one surrounding New Vrindavan have very long memories. And it's really strange, but as close as I was growing up to that place, I've never been inside. I've only seen the outside when our school bus that traveled down the road would break down and then our school bus would have to drop those kids off and that lived down that way. I'd definitely like to take a trip back home and see the inside. You know, maybe get a sense of what the community is like there now. Hopefully they'll never fall under the influence of someone so evil ever again. As much as I remember from growing up there, there was a lot that I didn't know. I was just a kid, so researching this was pretty interesting. A good bit of the information I got was from an article by Ellen McCarthy written for the Washington Post. There's a pretty famous book called Monkey on a Stick about the whole affair, but it's been out of print for a long time and I wasn't able to get my hands on it. But I did find a couple of good shows that I watched that gave me some good background. Don't let the story keep you from visiting West Virginia or New Vrindavan. Like I said, it's a beautiful state. I'm very proud I'm from there, despite its reputation. It may not be doing well financially or have great culture, but it does have some really good people that you won't find anywhere else. Hopefully, I will never live there again, but it's really nice to go back now and then. So that was the story of the Hare Krishna murders. I've been thinking about covering that one for a long time. There was just a lot of research involved, so it took me a little while. I hope I've done it some good justice. This week, definitely check out a podcast called Whispers in the Night. It's one of my favorites, and it's done by a guy named Sang Hong Duong Det. I hope I did not butcher your name. The second season will focus on the subject of my first episode, the Smiley Case Killer Theory. I was very excited to be interviewed by him. He's a super cool guy, and this podcast is great. I'm a fan, and I was honored to be asked by him to have just a part in what he's doing. So check it out. Once again, it's called Whispers in the Night. You definitely won't be disappointed by it. Don't forget to check out the Red Run Blonde Facebook page. 
Check me out on Twitter and Instagram. And join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. If you're liking the show, please go to whatever format you listen to the show on and leave a good review. Definitely helps, and I'm always looking for new listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 